Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Pat Steele, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Scott Splavek. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We will wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Today we're looking for breezy conditions, chance of, uh, I'm sorry, with uh, periods of uh, clouds and some sunshine. Winds will be out of the north-northwest, 12 to 15 miles an hour. Expecting a high today of 44 degrees, a low of 24. Tonight, clear skies. Winds out of the north-northwest, 7 to 14 miles an hour. Looking ahead tomorrow, a little bit warmer, high of 53. And for Thanksgiving Day, be cooler conditions, but uh, uh, some sunshine and a low of 23 on Thanksgiving. Our normal high for this time of year is 46, so we'll be in that area. The record high was set back in 1897 at 76 degrees and record low 5 degrees back in 1964. From the front page of main section of Des Moines Register, a uh, uh, story about uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. They nurtured their 77-year love affair. Also a story on the review board for Des Moines Police and a judge that said a police need a warrant to search Iowans' trash. From the Metro and Iowa section, Reynolds and DeSantis are firm on abortion. A story about a counselor grooming student in a lawsuit. And I uh, want to know about traffic and roads before Thanksgiving. We'll have an article on that. So let's look at the weather headlines. And now here's Scott with our first story. Thank you, Pat. I'll start with Carter's nurtured 77-year love affair. Gave each other space, but found joy together. This is written by Marina Potofsky of the USA Today. Former President Jimmy Carter and former First Lady Rosalind Carter weren't supposed to go on their first date. On a Sunday night in 1945, Jimmy Carter, on a break from the U.S. Naval Academy and in his hometown of Plains, Georgia, was supposed to go out with another woman. But after she was busy at a family reunion, the future president sought out another date and laid eyes on his future first lady. Quote, I wanted to have a date because I was getting ready to go back to Annapolis for another time of isolation, end quote, Carter told Oprah Winfrey in a 2015 interview. He goes on to say, I was cruising around Plains and saw Rosalind on the front steps of the Methodist Church, end quote. The two went to a movie, and Carter told his mother the next morning that she's the one I'm going to marry. Less than a year after their first date, the future president proposed. Quote, she said no, Carter recalled in the 2015 interview. From then until late May, she maintained no. I kept trying, and finally she said okay, end quote. They were married July the 7th, 1946. The former first lady died on Sunday after being diagnosed with dementia earlier this year. She and Jimmy Carter were married for 77 years. Quote, I can't really quantify it all, describe it in words, but I knew that she was quiet. She was extremely intelligent. She was very timid, by the way, beautiful, 
and there was just something about her that was irresistible, end quote, Carter said in 2015 after being asked what he, what he knew after his first date with Rosalind Carter. He goes on to say, it's been the best thing I've ever had happen to me, marrying Rosalind and living together for so long, growing to know each other more and more intimately every day in married life, end quote, he told the New York Times in 2021 as they celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. Quote, I've been very happy, he said, and I love her more now than I did to begin with, which is saying a lot because I loved her a lot, end quote. Rosalind Carter, who was friends with Jimmy Carter's younger sister, Ruth, in a 2021 interview, recalled the time before they started their courtship. Quote, I spent a lot of time at the Carter's house, but he was always off at school, end quote, Rosalind Carter, then age 93, recalled. She goes on to say he was so good to Ruth, he would write her letters, and she talked about him all the time. And she had his photograph on the wall in her bedroom, and I literally did fall in love with that photograph, end quote. When asked what he was most proud of having accomplished as a couple, Carter told the Atlanta Journal having been elected president with Rosa's good help. The former first lady said she loved campaigning and meeting Americans across the country, and she valued hearing directly about the challenges they faced. Quote, I love it. I love campaigning. I had the best time. I was in all the states in the United States. I campaigned solid every day the last time we ran, end quote, she said in 2021. He described their marriage as his proudest achievement. Quote, the best thing I ever did was marrying Rosalind, Carter said in an interview at the Carter Center in the year 2015. Rosalind Carter, for her part, said in 2021 that, quote, everything with Jimmy Carter has been an adventure, end quote. We've been blessed to be able to travel the world almost, she said. Carter and his wife spent decades side by side. Quote, we found out a long time ago that we needed to share everything. I gave her plenty of space, Carter told the Washington Post. She does what she wants to, and I do what I want to. But then we searched for things that we could do together, end quote. After leaving the White House, the two shared a love of humanitarian work, but they also focused on hobbies such as tennis, fly fishing, and more. Quote, well, I think we give each other space and we try to do things together. We're always looking for things that we can do together, like birding and fly fishing and just anything we can find to do together. And quote, Rosalind Carter told PBS in 2021. Thank you, Scott. On a related story, the services for Rosalind Carter will be held next week. Multiple memorials are set in her native Georgia, and Candy Woodall of the Pennsylvania State Capitol Bureau wrote this article. Funeral services for former First Lady Rosalind Carter began, uh, begin next week with multiple memorials planned in her native Georgia. She died peacefully Sunday at her home in Plains, Georgia. At the Carter, According to the Carter Center, she was 96 years old. The Carter Center late Sunday night released a schedule of events providing guidance for how the public could watch, attend, or pay their respects to the former First Lady. Services start Monday and continue through Wednesday in Atlanta and Sumter County, Georgia, and here's what you need to know. Memorials begin next Monday with a wreath laying at Georgia Southwestern State University, and then her motorcade will travel to the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum in Atlanta, where she will lie in repose. 
The full schedule on November 27th at 10.25 a.m., the Carter Family Motorcade will arrive at the Phoebe Sumter Medical Center in Americas. Mrs. Carter's remains will be transferred to a hearse accompanied by past and present members of the United States Secret Service detail. At 10.40 a.m., the motorcade will depart the grounds of the medical center on a public route to nearby Georgia Southwestern State University in Americus, Georgia. The public is invited to pay respects along the motorcade route, which will be shared later. At 11 a.m., the motorcade arrives at the Rosalind Carner Health and Human Sciences Complex at Georgia Southwestern State University, where Reeves will be laid. Then at 11.15, the motorcade departs for the Carter Presidential Center in Atlanta. It's expected to arrive there at 3.15, and then there'll be a arrival ceremony with the Carter Presidential Library Museum. At 3.30, repose service in lobby of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library Museum. Then from 6 to 10 o'clock that night, the Carter family invites members of the public to pay their respects as Rosalind Carter lies in repose at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Parking in a shuttle will be available at the St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Uh, it's in Peach, on Peachtree Street in Georgia. On November 28th, from 11.30 to 11.45 a.m., the Carter Presidential Departure Ceremony motorcade proceeds to the Glen Memorial Church at Emory University. From 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m., tribute service at Glen Memorial Church at Emory University with invited guests. The former First Lady's funeral services will be held November 29th in Plains. On uh, November 29th at 10.55 a.m., the funeral procession uh, arrives at Marana Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains. At 11 o'clock, the service begins for family and invited friends. At 12.30 p.m., the casket will be transferred to a hearse and depart for private interment at the Carter family residence. Memorial services and funeral will be broadcast by major television networks and streamed online when services begin on Monday. You can follow along at the Rosalind Carter Tribute.org Center or the Carter Center website, which is cartercenter.org. Scott? Thank you, Pat. Next, review board for Des Moines Police. News analysis supports, new analysis, excuse me, supports earlier calls for panel. This is written by F. Amanda Tugati of the Des Moines Register, which is part of the USA Today Network. A new analysis of the Des Moines Police Department shows support for a community review board and suggests city officials and community members be part of the group to help address concerns and reshape policing policies. The recommendation, which is among the 46 outlined in a new report by the Chicago-based firm 21st Century Policing Solutions, reinforces numerous calls from social justice groups such as Just Voices Iowa and Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, who in recent years have demanded the department create a third-party review board to hold its officers and systems accountable. Public Works LLC, another consulting firm hired to assess the police department, rolled out a similar recommendation in its report last year, adding that advocates and people with lived experiences be included on the review board to collaborate with law enforcement officials on public safety issues. It suggested the city create a board that is both advisory and investigatory and that would review investigations of police misconduct. 
Changes made to state law prohibit the state from creating an investigatory review board, however, City Manager Scott Sanders previously said. Des Moines City Council members have been split on whether they favor setting up a review board. During the recent mayor and council campaign, Mayor-elect Connie Bozen and council members Josh Mandelbaum and Carl Voss expressed support. Council members Joe Gatto, Linda Westergaard, and council member-elect Chris Coleman voiced opposition. Quote, I support a citizen's review board and we are already working to find the most effective way to implement implement it in the city, end quote, Bozen said in response to a Des Moines Register questionnaire to mayoral candidates this fall. 21 CP Solutions 76-page report also pointed out the department's need to diversify its staff and strengthen its relationship with the city's immigrant communities. The firm noted issues with the department's promotional process, adding the department should partner with the city's Human Resources Department and Civil Service Commission to create a more valued and relevant process. And it backed Chief Dana Wingert's proposal to the city to hire a diversity and equity coordinator for the police department. Quote, this report provides a thorough evaluation of our police department. It identifies how current policies impact our community, where DMPD excels, and where there is room to improve compared to national best practices, end quote, Sanders said in a news release Monday. He goes on to say, our police department is deeply committed to providing the highest standards of public safety for our community, and we embrace this report as our roadmap for continued improvement. We will review and prioritize these recommendations to provide immediate and long-term benefits to our community, end quote. The 21CP team conducted focus groups, interviews, and surveys with community members, DMPD employees, and other stakeholders to come to its conclusions. Here's a look at some of the report's recommendations. Report all police stops, including race and gender. 21CP Solutions has advised the department to complete all, complete all the recommendations previously made by Public Works LLC on data collection and make those reports available to the public. Public Works suggested the department record all its stops, not just the ones that result in arrests, warnings, or citations. It also asked the department to include the race, gender, and sex of the individuals stopped by police. Recognizing the department can only do so much, 21CP Solutions proposed the city offer more funding to hire data analysts and to create a system such as an online dashboard where the public can access the data. The firm also noted the department needs to have a more formal feedback structure in place so trends can be analyzed. This structure could include launching focus groups with officers or review trainings on search and seizure. Create a use, use of force review committee de-escalation policy. 21CP Solutions says the department should try to re-engage with community members who have voiced concerns about the way it conducts stops and searches, especially with high-profile cases. The firm found while the department has done more to track its use of force, quote, the effort is not entirely ideal, end quote. It said the department should formalize a use of force committee or force review board to review every serious use of force. The firm said officers may have received input on how they 
could better address and improve their performance, but that information is not widely shared with the community, information the firm says that is vital for improved accountability and transparency. And it said the DMPT, DMPD should revise its policy manual to reflect more clearly the department's commitment in all of its activities to valuing and upholding equity and fairness, honoring the sanctity of human life, and using de-escalation across all encounters. Do more with mental health response. 21CP Solutions also encouraged the department to partner with university researchers to better track and analyze the calls made to the Mobile Health Crisis Team or Crisis Advocacy Response Effort Program, which allows a mental health practitioner to respond to some calls with police. That information, the firm said, should be made available within the department and to the community. Though 21CP Solutions recognizes the CARE program is new, the firm echoed a recommendation from Public Works to launch a behavior and mental health work group. That group should include MCRT and care officers and clinicians, dispatchers and police officers with mental health expertise, as well as representatives from nonprofits, healthcare providers, and youth workers. Pat? Thank you, Scott. And our final story from the front page of Des Moines Register today is Judge says the police need warrant to search Iowans trash. William Morris of the Register wrote this article. It is, once again, illegal for police to search Iowans curbside trash without a warrant, at least according to a Polk County judge. Warrantless trash searches, a popular technique in drug cases and other investigations, have been in legal, legal limbo for a few years after the Iowa Supreme Court ruled they violated the owner's constitutional expectation of privacy in their personal effects. The state legislature then passed a law seeking to legalize such searches. Now a judge has found that law unconstitutional because it represents a legislature seeking to overrule the Iowa Supreme Court's interpretation at the, of the state constitution. The decision issued November 13th by Chief Judge Michael Huppert, does not block the law statewide and is not a legally binding precedent in other cases. But Huppert's order, if it is appealed, sets two branches of government on a collision course. The legislature, which Huppert found simply elected to vacate Supreme Court decisions with which it disagreed, and the Supreme Court itself, which was deeply divided in its trash decisions and has often sought to defer to the legislature wherever it can. The dispute over trash searches dates to June 2021 when the Iowa Supreme Court ruled that the state constitution does not permit warrantless trash searches. The decision creates a stronger privacy right than that recognized by federal courts under the U.S. Constitution, and the court split four to three. The issue came up in another decision in October 2021, and the court, by the same 4-3 split, affirmed its earlier ruling. Justifer Christopher McDonald wrote for the majority both times, while Justice Thomas Waterman wrote both times in dissent. The court's trash divide has even bubbled over into other issues. In a major and hotly disputed abortion decision in June 2023, Waterman, writing an opinion in a split decision that left in place a ruling blocking a restrictive abortion law, took a swipe at the justices on the losing side, including McDonald, 
that referenced the garbage case. Walderman wrote, It would be ironic and troubling for our court to become the first state Supreme Court in the nation to hold that trash set out in a garbage can for collection is entitled to more constitutional protection than a woman's interest in autonomy and dominion over her own body. The legislature also took note of the dispute and in 2022 passed a law holding that a person has no reasonable expectations of privacy and garbage placed outside of the person's residence for waste collection in a publicly accessible area. The November 13th decision stems from the cases of two Polk County residents facing controlled substance charges who asked the court to suppress evidence police obtained through multiple searches of their curbside garbage. Huppert granted that motion and found the Supreme Court's 2021 rulings, not the 2022 law, took precedence. In the case of the 2022 law, it is obvious that the legislature disagreed with the court's rulings and simply elected to vacate those constitutional pronouncements by legislative fiat, Huppert wrote. The legislature is vested with the power to pass all laws necessary to carry the Iowa Constitution into effect, not the power to enact legislation forbidden by the Constitution. Attorneys Nicholas Dial and Karen Hart-Lundby, representing the two defendants, praised the decision. They said the Supreme Court of Iowa has straightforward precedent controlling this issue of trash rips in Iowa. It is not within the Iowa legislature's power to define and decide what our constitutionally protected privacy interests are. This law was an obvious and purposeful overreach, attempting to contradict the Supreme Court, who is the final arbiter of our Constitution. And Lundy, uh, wrote the, Lundy, I should say, wrote this in an email. A spokesperson for the Polk County Attorney's Office said prosecutors have not yet had a chance to review the decision and declined to say if the county might appeal. If the case is appealed, it could give the Supreme Court another chance to revisit the issue. Justice Brent Apple, one of the four who found garbage searches unconstitutional in 2021, has since retired and been replaced by Justice David May. Scott? Thank you. I'll read our first article from the Metro and Iowa section. Top story is entitled, Reynolds and DeSantis Firm on Abortion. Election Results Don't Sway Efforts. It's written by Katie Aiken of the Des Moines Register. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pledged to continue their efforts to restrict abortion, regardless of recent elections that revealed a groundswell of support for abortion rights even in Republican-led states. Over a Saturday night brisket dinner, attendees of the Pulse Life Advocates Christmas Gala heard speeches from activists who oppose abortion rights, Reynolds and Iowa Attorney General Brendan Byrd and DeSantis and Florida First Lady Casey DeSantis. Quote, this isn't about me. It's about rejecting the inhumanity of abortion. It's about an ironclad commitment to the smallest and most vulnerable among us. It's about saving and caring for the unborn, unquote, Reynolds said. A worthy battle and one I will never concede. DeSantis and Reynolds have signed state laws that prohibit nearly all abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy, although neither law is currently in effect. 
Abortion remains legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks of pregnancy as the new law is tied up in the courts. Florida's law also awaits a ruling from the state's Supreme Court, which heard arguments in September. Republicans blame skewed advertising for Ohio abortion rights victory. Abortion rights supporters have achieved several recent election victories in other states. In November, voters in Ohio approved a ballot referendum that enshrined abortion rights in the state's constitution, despite the opposition of the state's powerful Republican Party and leading churches. Abortion was also a motivating issue in Virginia, where Democrats managed to win control of the state house and maintain their majority in the Senate. And Kansas and Kentucky voters in 2022 rejected proposed state constitutional amendments that would have explicitly stated abortion was not a protected right. Maggie DeWitt, executive director of Pulse Life Advocates, said Saturday that the Ohio ballot referendum was the result of deceptive media that ran pro-choice TV ads that disguised what abortion really is. I'm begging you tonight to not let Iowa become Ohio, DeWitt said, asking the audience to help create a culture of life and to donate to Pulse. The New York Times reports that Democrats nationwide spent more than $74 million on ads about abortion leading up to the off-year elections in November. Republicans spent $16 million. DeWitt asked DeSantis whether he thought Republican opposition to abortion was a losing issue for Republicans and what the party should do. DeSantis agreed with DeWitt's analysis of Ohio, blaming the ballot referendum vote on a skewed advertising in favor of abortion rights. Then he argued that leadership isn't about choosing the path of least political resistance. The way I govern myself in terms of all this is, I just want to be able to look in the mirror and know I did the right thing for the right reason and just let the chips fall where they may, DeSantis said. He has previously supported proposals for a federal 15-week ban. It's not a political liability to be pro-life, and it's not a losing issue, DeWitt said. Do Iowans support legal abortion? A March Des Moines Register slash Mediacom Iowa poll found that 61% of Iowans support legal abortion in all or most cases. Likely Republican caucus goers are much more likely to favor abortion restrictions. An August Des Moines Register slash NBC News slash Mediacom Iowa poll found that 58% of likely Republican caucus goers think Iowa's fetal heartbeat law, which would ban most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy, is the right approach. However, Iowa polls also reveal that abortion is not the highest priority issue for many likely Republican caucus goers. In November, 41% said abortion restrictions were extremely important to them as they decide which candidate to support, ranking far behind top concerns of the economy and border security. No dwelling on Trump's terrible comment. DeSantis has been a vocal critic of Trump in recent weeks, frequently reminding Iowans that the former president called a six-week abortion ban a terrible mistake. But Trump's skepticism of strict abortion bans hardly came up at Saturday night's banquet. As Reynolds spoke about the new battle for the hearts and minds of every American, she simply said, We're facing a resistance even from leaders that we didn't expect. 
Meanwhile, across the state in Fort Dodge, Trump held a rally of his own on Saturday afternoon. He touted his administration's international agenda, asserted himself as the inevitable winner of the Iowa caucuses, and mocked his political rivals. Pat? Thank you, Scott. Continuing from the Metro and Iowa section, pardon me, uh, this is an article written by Stephen Gruber Miller, and uh, Governor Reynolds grants freedom and flourish a Thanksgiving reprieve. Ava Moline has been raising turkeys for six years. She's 15 years old. This year, two of Moline's 2,000 turkeys were selected for a special honor, a pardon from Governor Reynolds. Reynolds declared the two birds free to roam in a pardoning ceremony Monday at the Governor's Terrace Hill residence. The two turkeys, a tom and a hen, are named Freedom and Flourish after Iowa's new state slogan. But Moline said she originally called them Jack and Diane. The Moline family, fifth-generation turkey farmers, and Ava's father, Brad Moline, is the president of the Iowa Turkey Federation. He said, this year I couldn't think of a better opportunity to showcase Ava's turkeys and what a good job she's done raising turkeys and growing her small business up doing that. Reynolds noted that Brad's father participated in the first turkey pardoning at Terrace Hill in 1976. This is the family's 99th year in business. Governor Reynolds added, let's not kid ourselves. I think the real star of the Moline family today is Brad's daughter, Ava. Ava Moline started her business, Golden Prairie Turkeys, in Manson with her two brothers. But she said she's taken over the bulk of the work as she's gone from 300 turkeys to the 2,000 she raised this year. She does get a little help, though. My dad helps drive them around everywhere, she said. She said she was glad her hard work raising the turkeys was being recognized. She said, it's just a learning experience for me, and it teaches me hard work, she said of the business, and it's going to help me pay for my college. Brad Moline said turkey farmers continue to struggle with the latest outbreak of avian influenza, but the outbreaks are much more isolated than a previous outbreak in 2015, and farmers like him and Ava are careful to take precautions to avoid the disease spreading. He said there's an abundant supply of Thanksgiving turkeys, and I believe the overall price has come down for the consumer this year as well. Scott? Counselor grooming student suit says, Centerville High minor alleges abuse and distress. This is written by William Morris of the Des Moines Register. A Centerville student says she was subjected to months of harassment and grooming by a high school guidance counselor that her school district failed to prevent the abuse and that she was then subjected to bullying and abuse by classmates and even teachers without any protection from administrators. The minor student is identified as Jane Doe in a Wampalo County lawsuit she filed along with her parents against the Centerville Community School District and several administrators and teachers. It alleges sexual assault, emotional distress, and defamation and makes constitutional due process and equal protection claims. The case, first reported by the Ottumwa Courier, centers on alleged misconduct by former counselor Ryan Hodges, who resigned earlier this year amid an investigation by the district. At the time, the student was taking dual credit nursing classes at the nearby Indian Hills Community College where her instructor was Hodges' wife. There, 
2, she says she faced retaliation and was ultimately denied credit for the courses she'd taken, and Indian Hills and its trustees and administrators are also named as defendants in her suit. Filed November the 9th, the suit follows another filed earlier this year by the Iowa Freedom for Information Council challenging a closed-door school board meeting regarding Hodges. The defendants have not yet filed responses in court, and no attorney was listed in court documents for Hodges who could not be reached for comment. Centerville Superintendent Mark Taylor did not respond to a message seeking comment, and Indian Hills President Matthew Thompson declined to comment, citing the litigation. Months of alleged harassment by school counselor. The the complaint alleges that Hodges, then age 39, had an already impressive history of misconduct and harassment of minor girls that was open, obvious, and infamous at Centerville High, but he was still entrusted by the district to work with students. The student, then age 16, says when she met with him in August of the year 2022 about college admission information, He instead started talking with her about partying and past sexual encounters. Hodges allegedly continued summoning the student for inappropriate discussions, including pulling her out of study hall so often her teacher began asking for reasons, the suit says. He also allegedly attained her cell phone number and used it repeatedly to text her at home between 7 p.m. and 1 a.m. The student was uncomfortable with Hodges' actions, and told her parents, but fearing backlash, did not report him to the school until other other students began spreading rumors the two were in a relationship. The suit says that led to widespread bullying and harassment that the school allegedly did nothing to stop. Retaliation from multiple teachers' schools. The bullying didn't just come from other students. The suit accuses one of the girl's teachers, Carissa Marshall, of calling her a whore and a homewrecker during classes and of complaining to the principal when she arranged to study in another teacher's classroom instead of attending Marshall's class. Quote, throughout this entire process, plaintiffs repeatedly requested that Centerville take any steps at all to protect Doe from the ongoing harassment to which she was subject on a daily basis, end quote, the complaint says. It goes on to say each and every request by plaintiff was rebuffed by high school staff who simply asserted that the issue would blow over, end quote. The student allegedly faced additional retaliation at Indian Hills, where Danielle Hodges, her instructor, warned her that she should probably just withdraw, then began unfairly scoring her classwork lower than that of other classmates, even on objective measures such as multiple-choice tests, where she had given the same answers, Indian Hills. She had given the same answers. Indian Hills refused to transfer her to a different instructor, and Danielle Hodges then accused her of cheating on tests, ensuring she would receive no credit for the course. The suit says. Ryan Hodges, according to the complaint, was placed on leave November 30, 2022, more than a week after administrators finally met with the student's parents. He eventually resigned in February while the district's investigation was pending, and the district refused to share any details with the student's family or the public or to rebut any of the false rumors being spread against the student. Asked for comment, the family's attorney, Ben Bergman 
said his firm is excited to seek justice for our clients. Pat? Thank you, Scott. What to know about traffic and roads before Thanksgiving? Kyle Werner of the Des Moines Register wrote this article. This year is going to be one of the busiest Thanksgiving weekends for travel on record. According to AAA Thanksgiving forecasts, 54.4 million people nationwide are expected to travel 50 miles or more to give thanks with family and friends over the holiday. More than 4 million of those travelers are predicted to be in the Midwest, a 2% increase from last year. Debbie Haas, Vice President of Travel for AAA, said in a news release, Travel demand has been strong all year, and that trend will continue with one of the busiest Thanksgiving on record. With more people taking to the roads, skies, rails, and sea, travelers should expect congested roads and longer lines at transportation terminals. AAA encourages travelers to develop their plan now, leave early, or leave early and be courteous to each other. COVID-19 put a damper on traveling for the holiday season. Pre-pandemic, the predicted travel forecast was around 4.56 million travelers in the Midwest. Since 2021, the number was reported to be 4.25 million. How will people be traveling on Thanksgiving? Most of these Thanksgiving truckers are driving cars to get to the holiday destinations. Good news for them, gas prices should remain relatively low, at least compared to last year when the average cost per gallon was $3.51. The state average sits below that, currently at $3.05 a gallon. The average cost in Des Moines Metro is around $3.03. Unless oil prices suddenly spike in the remaining days until Thanksgiving, gas prices are predicted to stay around the current average, and you can find gas price averages on AAA's website or compare prices around with apps like Gas Buddy. What to expect if you're driving on Thanksgiving? NREX, a provider of transportation data and insights, reports that November 22nd will be the busiest day on the roads during the Thanksgiving holiday travel period. Average travel times are estimated to be up to 80% longer than normal in some metro areas. Plan on leaving in the morning or after 6 p.m. to avoid the heaviest holiday congestion. Bob Pishu, transportation analyst at NREX, said in a news release, The day before Thanksgiving is notoriously one of the most congested days in our roadways. Travelers should be prepared for long delays, especially in and around major metros. Knowing when and where congestion will build can help minimize holiday traffic frustrations, we advise drivers to use traffic apps, local DOT notifications, and 511 services for real-time updates. Whether you're traveling cross-country or to the next town over, the Iowa Department of Transportation reminds drivers to stay safe anytime, not just during the holiday season. We always give the tips of wearing your seatbelt and make sure you focus on the task of driving, said Andrea Henry, a spokesperson for the Iowa DOT. One of the major issues this year has been speed. The speed of traffic in general has just gotten faster, so we ask that everyone slow down. That will really help improve the safety of the roadways. And here are some Thanksgiving driving tips from AAA. First, get a full vehicle inspection before setting out on your trip. Leave early and allow extra time to get to your destination so you are not in a rush. Identify alternate routes in case you encounter congestion or road closures. 
Avoid distractions while driving. Program your GPS before you drive. Ensure everyone in the vehicle wears their seatbelts and never drive impaired. What to expect if you're flying this Thanksgiving season? The turkey on your table might not be taking flight, but travelers are. According to a AAA news release, nearly 231,000 people are expected to fly from the Midwest for Thanksgiving, which is 13,000, or 5% more than 2022, but still behind pre-pandemic numbers. Much like driving, the days leading up to Thanksgiving are some of the busiest in airports. Tuesday and Wednesday before Thanksgiving are the busiest air travel days ahead of the holiday and the most expensive the news release said. Sunday is typically the busiest day to return home. AAA data shows Monday is also a popular day to fly back after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving travel at the Des Moines International Airport is expected to beat pre-pandemic levels with 25,000 people expected to pass through. The Sunday after Thanksgiving could see over 5,000 passengers. And Thanksgiving flying tips from AAA? Check in early online. Monitor your flight status using your air carrier's mobile app. Arrive two to three hours before scheduled departure. And pack your medications and extra set of clothes in your carry-on bag just in case your flight is delayed or canceled. Good tips, I'd say, Scott. I agree, Pat. Our final story in the Metro and Iowa section, Officer Shoots Man Allegedly Driving Toward Him. This is written by Noel Alvise Grancy of the Des Moines Register. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation is investigating an officer-involved shooting in Red Oak that injured a suspect Sunday. A Red Oak police officer was questioning a male driver about operating a vehicle without a license at about 3.32 p.m. in the southwest Iowa town when a physical struggle occurred. The man got into his car and allegedly drove toward the officer, according to a news release from the Iowa Department of Public Safety. The officer then fired at him, causing a non-life-threatening but serious injury. The suspect was taken to the University of Nebraska Medical Center Hospital in Omaha for treatment. No other details have been released. Turning back to the front section of the Des Moines Register, some national news. Outbreak of salmonella is linked to cantaloupe. This is written by Gabe Huari of USA Today. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is urging people not to eat, sell, or serve cantaloupe products that were recently recalled as they investigate an ongoing outbreak of salmonella. The FDA and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are investigating an outbreak of salmonella that has sickened at least 43 people across 15 states, with 17 of those people being hospitalized, the agency said Friday. According to the CDC, state and local public health officials are interviewing people about the foods they ate in the week before they got sick. Of the 29 people interviewed, 15 reported exposure to cantaloupe. Three brands have recently been recalled numerous Excuse me, let's try it again. Three brands have recently recalled numerous fresh cantaloupe and pineapple products due to possible salmonella contamination. These products were sold in more than a dozen states and Canada. Sophia Produce LLC, which operates under the name True Fresh, recalled all sizes of fresh cantaloupe with a label that says Malachita on November 15th. The recall 
recalled cantaloupes were sold from October the 16th through October the 23rd. National grocer Aldi also announced a recall on cantaloupe, cut cantaloupe, and pineapple spears in clamshell packaging with best buy dates between October the 27th and October the 31st. Last week, Vineyard Fruit and Vegetable Company initiated a voluntary recall of all fresh-cut cantaloupe product. The recall includes fresh-cut products containing cantaloupes distributed in Oklahoma from October the 30th to November the 10th. According to the FDA, the recalled cantaloupe was sold at retail stores in Arizona, California, Maryland, New Jersey, Tennessee, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida, as well as Canada. The agency also warned that the list may not include all states where it was sold, as the cantaloupes could have reached consumers through further retail distribution. What to know about symptoms? According to the FDA, salmonella is an organism that can cause serious and sometimes fatal infections in young children, frail or elderly people, and others with weakened immune systems. Symptoms include fever, diarrhea, which may be bloody, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. The FDA said illness usually occurs within 12 to 72 hours after eating contaminated food and usually lasts four to seven days. If you think you became sick from consuming a recalled product, the FDA says you should contact your health care provider. FDA recommendations on recall. According to agency, consumers should follow the following guidance. Consumers, restaurants, and retailers should not eat, sell, or serve recalled cantaloupe and products containing cantaloupe. Consumers, restaurants, and retailers should check their freezers and throw away recalled fresh or cut cantaloupe that was frozen for later use. And if you cannot tell if your cantaloupe is part of the recall, do not eat or use it and throw it away. Pat? Thank you, Scott. And continuing with the front page uh, section of Des Moines Register, the Supreme Court declines appeal in Chauvin case. John Fritzie of USA Today wrote this article. The Supreme Court on Monday turned away an appeal from Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer convicted of killing George Floyd. The Supreme Court did not give an explanation. Chauvin's lawyer argued that riots that took place in the city biased the jury and that jurors were, were compelled to side against Chauvin to avoid further unrest. Continues, Mr. Chauvin's case shows the profound difficulties trial courts have to ensure a criminal defendant's right to an impartial jury consistently when extreme cases arise, his attorneys told the court. This was particularly true here when the jurors themselves had a vested interest in finding Mr. Chauvin guilty in order to avoid further rioting in the community in which they lived and the possible threat of physical harm to them or their families. The May 2020 killing of George Floyd sparked months of civil rights protests, marches, and unrest worldwide over police brutality and systemic racism in how law enforcement treat black people. Chauvin, who was white, held his knee on Floyd's neck for nine minutes and ignored the black man's protest that he couldn't breathe, a scene captured by distressing, widely viewed witness videos. Chauvin was convicted of murder and manslaughter in state court in April 2021, 
and sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. He pleaded guilty to federal civil rights violations in Floyd's murder and in holding a 14-year-old boy by the throat, beating him with a flashlight and pressing his knee to the boy's neck for 15 minutes in 2017. The city of Minneapolis agreed to pay nearly $9 million to settle two police misconduct lawsuits involving Chauvin's actions years before he murdered Floyd. When Chauvin was found guilty in state court, crowds cheered and sobbed. There was so much work to do, people said. NAACP President Derek Johnson said at the time, Police are here to protect, not lynch. We will not rest until all in our community have the right to breathe. President Joe Biden called on Americans to turn the guilty verdict into a moment of significant change to fight systemic racism in policing. In Minneapolis, numerous investigations, reforms, and convictions followed. In addition to Chauvin, three other former Minneapolis officers were convicted in federal court of civil rights offenses. Tal Tao and Alexander King were convicted of willfully failing to stop Chauvin from killing Floyd. They and Thomas Lane were convicted of failing to render medical aid. The three men were also convicted on state charges of aiding and abetting manslaughter. Broader still, after a two-year investigation, the Federal Justice Department concluded in June that Minneapolis and its police department engaged in a pattern of violating people's rights through the unnecessary, unjustified use of deadly force and discrimination. Scott? Thank you, Pat. In Iowa, Trump hurls insults at rivals. Biden is primary target, but others aren't spared. This is written by Galen Bacarier of the Des Moines Register, and the dateline is Fort Dodge, Iowa. Former President Donald Trump returned to Iowa Saturday, continuing to tout his administration's internal international agenda and assert himself as the state's inevitable winner with caucus day less than two months away. Trump, who remains the faraway frontrunner in the Republican primary race, focused the bulk of his speech on President Joe Biden, calling him a quote-unquote stupid person, quote-unquote incompetent, and incapable of representing the U.S. on the world stage amid international crises. He says, Quote, this is not a man who should be running the country, end quote. He also said former President Jimmy Carter, whose wife of 77 years, Rosalind, entered hospice care Friday and died Sunday, is, quote, the happiest person anywhere in this country right now because his administration looks brilliant compared to these clowns, end quote. The crowd laughed, then broke into cheers and applause. The former president's most prominent challengers, both of whom have been campaigning in Iowa in recent days, were not spared from his attacks. Trump continued to attack Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on ethanol, mocking his struggle to gain momentum in the race. Quote, he's going whoosh down the tubes, Trump said, motioning downwards. He did not mention Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who recently endorsed DeSantis and has been the target of Trump's wrath for being ungrateful after he claimed responsibility for her electoral victory in the governor's race. But he invoked a similar, similar sentiment in Fort Dodge about Iowa's two senators. Quote, I got a lot of people elected here, end quote, including... 
including U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, who was having a problem, and U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, who had really big problem. I got him elected. Remember that? End quote. Grassley won his eighth Senate term in the year 2022 with 56% of the vote. Ernst won a second term with 52% of the vote in 2020. The former president also briefly attacked former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, calling her quote-unquote bird brain and saying she, like she, like DeSantis, was disloyal for running against him. Quote, I know her well. She's not up to the job, end quote, he said. Trump suggested that with a large margin of victory in Iowa, his challengers would concede and the party could turn their attention and resources to the general election. Quote, we have to send a great signal and maybe these people end it, say it's over now, he said, because we have to focus on crooked Joe Biden, end quote. As wars rage abroad, Trump touts his foreign agenda while denigrating Biden. In visits Visits to Iowa since the Israel-Hamas war began in early October, Trump has increasingly focused on his past and future approach to international relations, recalling past conversations with world leaders while dismissing Biden as incompetent. Saturday was no different, as he called for supporters to return him to the White House and again grant him a seat at the world table in the midst of multiple conflicts abroad. Quote, the next war is going to be a nuclear war, and that's going to be obliteration, and we have a leader who can't put two sentences together negotiating for us, end quote, Trump said. He once again declared that only he would be able to stop World War III and promised he would bring a swift end to the war in Ukraine and the Israel-Hamas war. Exactly how, he hasn't explained. Supporters who spoke to the Des Moines Register on Saturday said foreign policy remained front of mind as they followed the election. Julie McHugh, age 55 of Fort Dodge, said, quote, We need somebody in government that's going to take control of things right now, end quote, praising the Trump administration's tariffs and trade policy. And Rhonda Hoover, a 72-year-old Otho resident, said she liked how Trump represented the U.S. on the international stage. Quote, Russia and China didn't rear their ugly heads when Trump was in, end quote, Hoover said. Trump's GOP rivals criticize him in Iowa ahead of his Saturday visit. Trump's Saturday visit, his first to Iowa since October the 29th in Sioux City, comes on the heels of a Friday evangelical forum held by the family leader and attended by DeSantis, Haley, and Ramaswamy. Like the organization's forum earlier this year, the former president declined to attend. Quote, they expect him to do the debate. They expect him to show up, and quote, Reynolds told reporters outside of DeSantis's newly opened Urbandale office on Saturday morning. Quote, they expect him to earn their vote, and he's just not doing it, end quote. DeSantis referenced previous comments by Trump that characterized a six-week abortion ban like Iowa's as a terrible thing and criticized the frontrunner's Iowa campaign strategy as he continues on a swing through the state this weekend. Quote, I think it's been a mistake how he's not been willing to engage with Iowans outside of swooping in and doing a speech and then just leaving, end quote, DeSantis said. 
He goes on to say, I think you've got to get on the ground and you've got to shake the hands. You've got to answer the questions. That's what we've done, end quote. Haley on Friday said she disagreed with Trump's use of the word vermin to describe his political opponents during a Veterans Day speech and used the word chaos to describe Trump. Quote, the reality is I don't agree with that statement any more than I agree when he said Hezbollah was smart or any more than I agree when he hit Netanyahu when his country was on its knees after all that brutality, end quote, Haley said. It's the chaos of it, right? And in finishing up our final article from the uh, main section, Des Moines Register, the Nation and World section, the United Nations says the world is racing past the warmer limit. Report calls for slashing emissions by 42% to meet the goal in Paris. And Seth Bornstein, Associated Press, is the author of this article. The globe is speeding to 2.5 to 2.9 degrees Celsius and 4.5 to 5.2 degrees Fahrenheit of global warming since pre-industrial times set the blow well past the agreed-upon international climate threshold, a United Nations report calculated. To have an even-money shot at keeping warming to the 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit limit adopted by the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, Countries have to slash their emissions by 42% by the end of the decade, said the UN Environmental Program's Emissions Gap Report, which was issued on Monday. Carbon emissions from the burning of coal, oil, and gas rose 1.2% last year, the report said. This year, Earth got a taste of what's to come, said the report, which sets the table for international climate talks later this month. Through the end of September, the daily global average temperature exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius above mid-19th century levels on 86 days this year, the report said. But that increased to 127 days because nearly all of the first two weeks of November and all of October reached or exceeded 1.5 degrees according to the European Climate Service Copernicus. That's 40% of the days so far this year. On Friday, the globe hit 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels for the first time in recorded history, according to Copernicus Deputy Director Samantha Burgess. Lead author report Anne Olaf of Denmark's climate think tank, Conchito, said, It's really an indication that we are already seeing a change, an acceleration. Based on what science tells us, this is just like a whisper. What will be in the future will be more like a roar. The 1.5 degree global goal is based on a time period measured over many years, not days, scientists said. Earlier reports put Earth reaching that longer term limit in early 2029 without drastic emission changes. To keep from this from happening, the countries of the world have to come up with more stringent goals to cut emissions of carbon dioxide and implement policies to act on those goals, Olaf said. In the past two years, only nine countries have come up with new goals, so that hasn't moved the needle. But some countries, including the United States and those in Europe, have put policies in place that slightly improve the outlook, she said. The United States Inflation Reduction Act, which has $375 billion in spending on clean energy by 2030, would reduce yearly emissions of carbon dioxide by about 1 billion metric tons, Olaf said. 
That sounds like a lot, but the world in 2022 spewed 57.4 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases 